today on the Religion Prof podcast, you'll have the opportunity to listen in to a conference presentation that I gave at uh, Bowling Green State University at a conference about Batman. Uh, You'll also get to hear Matt Brake uh, provide a response and a different perspective. I hope you enjoy listening to this uh, special edition of the Religion Prof podcast. Thank you very much and uh, delighted to be able to be here. Uh, For those of you who have watched the evolving program um, and kept an eye on things may know that uh, there was some retconning uh, that resulted in my uh, being here. And so if you're wondering, okay, Batman, it's pretty obvious why you'd be talking about that at this conference. Nietzsche, sure. What about Chuck Robertson? Why is he on there? Well, the main reason, right, because obviously you can give answers to questions about Batman that are at the level of because that's what the editors wanted, or because trauma, because madness, because things that make sense in-world. I'm sure I could come up with an in-world, in-conference kind of answer, but the outside answer is that Chuck Robertson was supposed to be here and was supposed to be speaking, and he was unable to make it and asked me to step in, um, the boy wonder, the sidekick to his uh, Batman. But to introduce Chuck Robertson and why it would have been pretty cool and we would have been able to nerd out even more if you had been here, uh, Chuck is an incredible comic book nerd, uh, but he's also the canon to the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church USA, which uh, some of you may just possibly have heard of. And he credits, um, yeah, I mean, he credits his priesthood and his pursuit of ministry to Superboy. So he's the sort of person who engages at the intersection of uh, religion and popular culture and does interesting things there. And he has contributed to a volume. Uh, he's contributed to more than one volume, including some that I myself have edited on things like uh, religion and science fiction. But he contributed to a volume edited by a mutual friend of ours, um, B.J. Oropesa, called The Gospel According to Superheroes, Religion and Popular Culture. And his chapter in that book is about Nietzsche's Ubermensch and Batman. My contribution is about Neo and the Matrix. So he's much more the diehard fan. I'm the wannabe. But I think I can fill in and talk a little bit about Nietzsche and the Ubermensch, which of course is very often translated as Superman. And that in itself is one of the reasons why I think it's interesting to talk about this figure, and to talk about Batman in relation to and in comparison with other superheroes, with Nietzsche's ideal, and with ideas of heroism, of morality, right, of personal code and of societal norms, which have come up time and time again at this conference, right, and which have been highlighted in ways that uh, are as mutually contradictory as uh, some of the Batman stories and some of the impressions that people have of Batman, uh, depending on when they first encountered the character, uh, what the character exactly was wearing, uh, how long the ears were, and um, various other things. So there's a lot of humor online, a lot of memes related to Batman, Superman, Nietzsche, and Probably the only real reason I need a PowerPoint is to be able to share some of them with you. But the other reason is to be able to bring up some quotes from what uh, Robertson has written uh, to 
interact with him, both appreciatively but also critically, to do some updating because this book goes back uh, to actually an important moment in the history of Batman, but goes back precisely to that moment and therefore misses it and gives us a chance to talk about some things. So Robertson writes a number of things in uh, his chapter on Nietzsche's Übermensch and Batman and talks about the paradox of a superhero without superpowers serving as the clearest four-color representation of a modern humanistic mythology. And I immediately want to push back on the, the notion that there is a paradox there because, in fact, if any superhero however you define that, but if any comic book hero, comic book character that is in the heroic side of things could potentially be more like Nietzsche's Übermensch, then it's arguably much more likely to be Batman than some of the other candidates that might have been chosen, including the one for whom the, you know, the name fits most closely, perhaps. And to uh, offer another quote from Robertson, uh, where I think he gets this, the nuances a bit better, Perhaps in an attempt to create a hero quite different from Superman, as already seen, Kane and Finger unconsciously made their character, in fact, what the other was in name. If nothing else can be proven, and he comments a lot about the fact that none of those involved with the creation of Batman uh, <clears throat> were explicitly uh, engaging with Nietzsche, right? So this is not a category. This is a category that's being brought in for analysis purposes and not as one that was uh, identified as one of their motivations, but he says that if nothing else can be proven, it's certainly possible to argue that for Cain and Finger, as well as Gardner Fox, who began, um, who began writing many of the stories early on, the gospel, according to the Batman, if there were such a thing, would be a Nietzschean message. And as he uh, quotes from Nietzsche here, right, what makes one heroic? Right? And Nietzsche's paradoxical answer, and here probably there is a paradox, to go to meet simultaneously one's greatest sorrow and one's greatest hope. And Robertson argues that this can be seen visually in Bruce Wayne's childhood vow. And that vow, of course, is a key moment that we want to focus uh, some attention on. Right? Here, tragedy once experienced is, in essence, transformed into an eternal recurrence. Uh, literally, uh, if we assume that Batman as a franchise will be eternal. Uh, but also in the sense that there is this eternal return, um, common phrase in religious studies, and if Nietzsche is correct that that which does not kill me makes me stronger, then young Bruce Wayne has suddenly left the world of the weak and through his remarkable response to personal tragedy has entered a new world of the strong, the world of the ubermensch. And so here we have two comics. Only one of those, I think, is real, but uh, both are interesting. <clears throat> if we think about the vow that defines Batman, his identity, his mission, and think of it in relation to questions about Nietzsche, right? The legend of the Batman and how, you know, who he is and how he came to be gets a lot of attention and has been mentioned more than once at this uh, conference. If you're not familiar with it, haven't looked at it recently, I'm at a Batman conference. Of course you're familiar with it. If you haven't looked at it recently, feel free to, you can Google it and actually find uh, the, the panels and pull them up fairly easily. And... <clears throat> There are some things that are really worth noting about young Bruce and his transformation into the hero, into Batman. Right. Young Bruce kneels at his bed, a lone candle burning on the bedside table. There's an aura of the mystical, of the religious, of the sacred to this, 
With hands clasped and a tear running down his cheek, he makes a solemn pledge, and I swear by the spirits of my parents to avenge their deaths by spending the rest of my life warring on all criminals. And Robertson comments, The scene bears all the marks of a religious conversion, although hardly a Judeo-Christian one. Absent from the boy's prayer or pledge is any mention of God. Rather, he swears by his parents' spirits. There is no talk of forgiveness of one's enemies or even resignation to his loss, but instead a pledge of lifelong revenge. There is not even a suggestion of devoting his life to helping others, but rather a determination to wage a private war. There are lots of other resonances that one can see, right? And of course, one of the things I think Matt is going to focus on is the question of, is Joker much more of a, a Nietzschean uh, Ubermensch? And of course, the moment when the Joker realizes that without the Batman, you know, what is he? Um, and standing back from the comic book franchise, who's going to read the comic books about the Joker without the Batman, right? Um, I don't know if the Joker would have ever thought of it in those terms, but we can there are interesting questions here, though, right, as we dig beneath the surface, and we ask about Bruce Wayne's mission, his transformation, his values, right, because those have come up time and again at this conference. They come up time and again in discussions of relationships between uh, superheroes and, in particular, Batman and Nietzsche's vision of the Ubermensch, because one major question that I'm sure you've noticed the contradictory statements about at this conference is, is Batman somebody who plots his own course or defends society's values, right? And that really will, in many ways, determine your, your answer to how well or how poorly uh, Nietzsche's categories fit Batman, right? So Robertson, as I hinted earlier, uh, wrote the chapter in 2005. That's the same year that Batman Begins uh, appears. And so there's possibly a need for updating. I also had to include that little graphic in there somewhere and so right if you gaze long into an abyss you become batman so uh, uh professor paul jaisel writes at one point talking about nolan's films one element of the character that nolan's films get right is that batman is more than a human batman is an idea without that interpretation the character is nothing more than a rich dude in a rubber suit punching mentally ill people in the face Although that is a pretty good summary of the franchise overall, right? Uh, by becoming a symbol or an idea, Bruce Wayne can achieve his goal, the elimination of crime. The problem with Nolan's interpretation of the character is that Bruce only realizes what his mission is long after the tragic death of his parents. In fact, Nolan presents a Bruce Wayne initially driven by revenge rather than a desire to help people. This may make the character more realistic. It also makes him less inspiring, less heroic. And one possible fan answer would be, yeah, that's true. And another would be, so what? You know, do we need him to be more heroic? And which of these possible interpretations of the right Batman and Nolan's Batman, how they relate to one another, uh, gives us a chance to interact with the, the Nietzschean framework, right? So, Jason says, by uh, downplaying the altruistic desire to eliminate crime rather than seek revenge, Batman loses some of its inspiration in my eyes. I'd like to believe that people can be motivated to do the right thing for unselfish reasons. Without that, all we have are superhumans, not superheroes. And then contrast Robertson, who actually comes right out and says, unlike his Kryptonian counterpart, the Batman is not a superhero. And what he means by that, right, in a statement that could easily be drawn from Nietzsche's own pen, longtime Batman artist Dick Giordano claims, the Batman does what he does for himself, 
for his needs that society gains from his actions is incidental and added value, but not the primary reason for his actions. And I think that's the key point at which we get to ask, in what sense is Batman a superhero? In what sense is he a superhuman? In what sense is he the Ubermensch? Because one key characteristic is that willingness to defy societal values, to plot one's own course. And there's a sense in which Batman shifts over the course of history more than once in various directions, from someone who quite happily wields a gun, kills criminals, uh, or allows them to die without thinking it's a terrible thing or trying desperately to save them, to someone who works closely with the government, with the police force, and basically represents societal values. And of course, early on, uh, arguably, Batman is both in a sense, because he is at the same time someone who is uh, okay with enemies dying, and defender of what? Uh, the property of rich people like him. And so uh, there are certainly challenges to any notion that Batman fits the uh, Nietzschean Ubermensch, but part of the reason for that is, I think, what makes it interesting, that Batman is more than one character, not just over the course of the history of the franchise with various reboots and re uh, reinventions and adaptations, but in the same way that any one human being whose story is told is different people over the course of the story. And so, does one have to grow into certain um, a cape or certain shoes or a, a framework or typology? Uh, thinking about Joker and bringing Joker into the picture, at least a little bit. Uh, Lauren Davis writes, uh, Batman's refusal to kill the Joker is one symptom of his failure to fulfill the promise of the Nietzschean Ubermensch. Batman does not function on his own inner morality, taking each case and judging it according to his own will. Instead, he follows an exterior and conventional morality that divides actions into good and evil, a morality Nietzsche terms a slave morality, and he places killing among the evil actions. Rather than challenging conventional moral values by creating his own value system, Batman has enslaved himself to the notion that killing is, without question, evil. Whereas Nietzsche advocated the examination of truth from all perspectives, Batman is dogmatic and morally inflexible. Nietzsche would rather see Bruce Wayne free his will from outside influence, just as he freed his body from the typical constraints of human physicality. And that's why nerds want to be the Batman. Uh, but ideally without having to do the extensive workout routine. Once he has done that and has created his own system, he should take up the mantle of Ubermensch and lead humanity into the next moral age. As the Joker's existence conflicts with the assertion of Bruce Wayne's will, he should simply kill the Joker. Uh, and I imagine we may talk more about this. But what's interesting is right, that this certainly resonates with me and with something that my students, influenced by postmodernism, as of course, you know, and so showing the long-term effects of Nietzsche. Uh, I don't know how many of you who teach have students say, everyone's view is different in their essays. And I take great delight in pointing out to my students that they converge unanimously, all agreeing on saying this very thing that everybody's view is different. Does it matter whether the Batmans or Batmans or any version of him matches societal values? Or is it okay as long as it's happenstance, as long as his personal coat, he is leading by example, and if the society will not follow his lead or go in the direction that he moves, then he will no longer follow it. And so how do we tell when he's following, when he's leading, um, when he'd 
quite happily move in a different direction if the society were not something that he could support at that time. One more thing that the Ubermensch has to do, of course, is, you know, kill God. And so, had to work this uh, scene in here, right? Uh, you're never a god, you're never even a man. And of course, one of the things that makes Batman a much better candidate for Ubermensch, Superman, if you will, is precisely that if you have innate superpowers, then you lack some of the potential to transform yourself into that, you know, you're, you're almost disqualified automatically, even if there is a closer resemblance in some um, superlativeness, right? And so, as I think about that movie, right, where, you know, you have Lex Luthor trying to, you know, basically manipulate this uh, scenario, um, almost tempted to think of Lex Luthor as, uh, Nietzsche's, uh, as Nietzsche to uh, Bruce Wayne's Ubermensch in that. Uh, Robertson has commented at length about Batman and Superman. Uh, I will not spend that much time on that because I think um, I've probably gone on long enough. But I will say just very briefly that the, the two mythologies are very different, right? And the Batman one is much more humanistic, right? And so uh, the humanistic mythology that is uh, his is about achieving the pinnacle of human perfection in this life, knowing that no one will ever truly appreciate the achievement. Against such a Superman of the sort that Bat Batman is, that Bruce Wayne is, the Man of Steel, for all his power, looks weak in comparison. So finally, why does it matter? And of course, now you can tell that I'm actually a really terrible educator. Um, I should have told you first why it matters, and then you would have all been in there. But because we're at a Batman conference, I thought I could leave some of these things as food for thought, as additional resonances and connections, right? Uh, there's a lot of interest in Nietzsche, in superheroes, in connection with a number of movements in society, uh, questions of, super, of um, societal values, both you know, defending fatherhood and f father's rights and things like that, um, the Make-A-Wish Foundation, but also neo-Nazism and white supremacism and things like that. What is the connection between Nietzsche, the Nazis, the Ubermensch, Batman, these other things? Uh, gives us a chance to talk about the serious sides of popular culture. Uh, I think philosophical and religious lenses can be really useful for interpreting narratives. And I appreciated the point that was made in the last session that you know, there is a risk that you can come with a certain framework and impose it and everything looks like a cross or a Nietzschean Ubermensch or whatever. But there are categories that are very useful, lenses which help bring certain questions about the, the text into focus as long as we use them in that way. Uh, the tendency to immediately equate Ubermensch with Superman, I think, leaves Batman in the shadows, if you will. Um, and some of you will appreciate that phrase um, as true to the nature of Batman, in a way. He's supposed to be in the shadows. But if he's overshadowed by Superman when it comes to conversations about Nietzsche, then we're missing some important, um, some important points of co comparison. And finally, as a, a religious uh, studies person, who does a lot related to New Testament, just as there are a variety of Jesuses, um, and you wonder, you know, were there, were there new editors on the franchise, right, if uh, you go across the Gospels and a, an attempted at reboot um, in the fourth one, or, and things like that. But thinking about canon, diversity of narratives across different types of literature from different eras and epochs can also be useful. Because part of the reason why we can't give a simple answer to this question is that Batman, the Batman, uh, has been many things at many different times. Thank you.
corrected. There was never any doubt. Excellent. Yes. Thank you. All right. So next up, we have. Um, Matthew Brake from George Mason University. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, speaking, I'm going to give a quick plug for some of James's material. Uh, in his talk about canon, he uh, has two things you should really check out. One is a short book called Theology and Science Fiction, where he has a chapter in there where he talks about how canon in fiction relates to canon in uh, different types of religious text. He also has a card game called Canon, where everyone tries to match a personal head canon to a canon that they all agree on. So it's worth checking out. Talk to James about that. Uh, but as I start, um, we've sort of already established some of the groundwork I've written out here, um, mainly about how uh, Dr. Charles Robinson, uh, in the book Gospel According to Superheroes, which actually, uh, there's a group of books that uh, I tend to stay away from most gospel according to superheroes books because I find their analogies to be kind of surfacey. But this one by Oropesa is actually pretty critical uh, and has a lot of good stuff in it that I recommend uh, checking out. But one of the things Robertson argues, as we've established, is that the ubermensch that Nietzsche describes is best, um, is best compared to the person of Batman, right? So in this paper, I want to, uh, despite my respect for uh, Dr. Robertson, or Chuck, as we might affectionately call him, uh, I want to argue that Batman is actually much more of a Kantian figure who someone like Nietzsche would criticize, um, who may recognize the bankruptcy of metaphysical thinking, like Nietzsche does, um, but per Nietzsche's, that is really hot, but per Nietzsche's uh, critique of Kant, Batman, like Kant, sees the world as it is, but retreats inside of his moralistic cage and his metaphysical thinking. So one can see in the Joker's critique of Batman that Batman may see the world, in fact, as the Joker sees it, as Nietzsche sees it, but he retreats into an artificial moral code and sense of order. So instead, I think that the Joker is a much more appropriate candidate for the Ubermensch. For Nietzsche, his ubermensch is a creature of instinct, constantly remaking himself like fresh waves on a seashore, washing away the old, bringing the new. Think of uh, the Joker's line like, I'm just a dog chasing cars. Like, I wouldn't even know what to do if I caught one. You know, do I look like the man with a plan? Versus Batman, who always has a plan. Likewise, uh, as Grant Morrison has pointed out concerning the Joker, the Joker is constantly remaking himself. He lacks the constant sense of self or the a-perception that's so important to Nietzsche's understanding of there being a one continuous self throughout. So Nietzsche and the Joker are fine with a multiple sense of self, far more than I think the person of Batman allows. So the Joker as Ubermensch uh, breaks down these categories of stability that we find in the world. So like the Ubermensch, the Joker is beyond good and evil. He's okay moving beyond the categories of good and evil, and sometimes he'll side with the good guys when it suits his tastes. Uh, per Nietzsche's understanding of the Ubermensch as superhuman, the Joker also goes beyond uh, the binaries of uh, male and female as well, and is okay with a little bit of gender play and drag play, which we're going to get into Judith Butler in a little bit. But the key part of the superhuman is the superhuman isn't Superman. It is super or overhuman 
which means that uh, the Ubermensch can be either male or female, or even beyond those categories. And we're going to see this when we look at Arkham Asylum, a serious house from a serious earth. And like Nietzsche's Ubermensch, Joker's okay with these changes, and he's okay being satisfied with the choices he makes in the moment, such that he can wish that they would eternally return, while at the same time um, allowing his instincts to guide the current self and allowing his self to be remade. So real quick, quickly, I want to talk about why Batman is not the Ubermensch. So while I respect Chuck as a fellow Batman thinker, as a fellow theologian, as a fellow nerd, um, I, think he's, I think he's wrong about the Ubermensch in this, in this sense. Although he does point out that Batman, like the Ubermensch, seems to carry with him this sort of air of uh, aristocracy. He is a specimen of overflowing physical health. And he does have a keen mind. Uh, and he notes that Batman certainly has a strong will, uh, as we conventionally take a strong will to mean, per Batman 5 Superman, as I think, I think it was Joshua earlier who called it that. Um, the whole idea that the world only makes sense if you force it to, if you force your will upon it. Uh, I have reasons to believe that Robertson's view of the Ubermensch and the will to power may actually need some correction. So for starters, let's talk about what drives Batman, this uh, desire for vengeance. So we see here, this was shown in a panel yesterday, um, we're in All-Star Batman and Robin, which sucks, but nevertheless, we, uh, we have this panel here where Batman has this internal monologue where he's basically emotionally torturing Dick Grayson and saying, what am I doing to this kid? Who the hell do I think I am? We know earlier he said he's the goddamn Batman, but who the hell do I think I am? I'm torturing this boy, torturing him. Just look at him. He's a baby, and I'm torturing him, but it's the only way. If I don't keep the pressure on, he'll find time to grieve. I can't let him grieve. Uh, there's no time for grief. And this is one of the pictures I put together that uh, when my computer crashed and I rebooted, it didn't save my changes. But there's a line where he says, grief uh, leads to forgiveness, and we can't allow forgiveness. And so um, in his genealogy of morals, Nietzsche relates to his readers how the concepts of good and evil arise from the resentment of the weak against the strong. And it is the desire for revenge against the strong that drives the change in values from the goodness of the strong and the badness of weakness to seeing the strong and powerful as evil and the poor as morally good. So this leads Nietzsche to say that all morals related to selflessness and sacrifice actually have their root in this vengeance of the weak against the strong. And ultimately, any forgiveness that the weak say they have for their enemies is summed up in Josh's comment from the other session I was in about Tertullian, not being able to wait until we could watch the torment of the wicked. That in the end, even the love and forgiveness of the weak is still grounded in resentment. And if it's grounded in resentment and it's sort of buying your time until you can take vengeance, if you're masticating upon the vengeance you're going to take on your enemies for years and years and years, like Bruce Wayne, you can't be the Ubermensch. You can't buy your time with planning your revenge against the type of people who have wronged you. A type of people who you then seek to negate and say no to, rather than simply triumphing in your own strength. And actually, Nietzsche will say, a strong man can do what Batman can't. A strong man can actually extend grace, because they can shrug off what happens to them. Which brings me to my second point. Um, the Ubermensch does not hate his enemies or seek to permanently negate them. So here we see Batman telling the Joker, in Death of the Family, I believe. And again, this is one of those ones I changed, and then my changes didn't save, apparently. 
but there's uh, more than anything on this earth. Um, I, there's nothing I hate more than anything on this earth than you, Joker. Nothing. So this idea of hating the enemy, of negating them, whereas Batman may declare against his enemies no more and seek in vain to permanently negate the criminal element, the ubermensch sees such negation as unnecessary. His is not a no to his enemies, but a positivity of spirit that enjoys uh, the interaction and a level of respect with a foe against whom he can test his mettle. And actually, uh, at one point, uh, Nietzsche says in Genealogy of Morality that a strong society can shrug off crimes against it. So hatred of enemies is for the weak, and for all of Batman's cleverness, Nietzsche attributes cleverness to the vengeful desires of the weak and not to the will to power of the strong. And finally, Batman's moral code gets in the way of his being the ubermensch. So Zack Snyder's murdery fanfiction Batman notwithstanding, uh, Batman's one rule about killing finds kinship with Immanuel Kant's own categorical imperative. The one universalizing rule or maxim that guides all of Batman's actions, which he refuses to break. Thou shalt not, though, is the morality of the weak man and not of the ubermensch. Joker's critique of Batman is in many ways the same as Nietzsche's critique of Kant, where Nietzsche writes, and I'm going to quote this at length, and my apologies for not putting it up here. There are a hundred ways in which you can listen to your conscience. In other words, that you feel something to be right. Uh, in which you can listen to your conscience. Uh, this may be due to the fact that you have never thought much about yourself and simply have accepted blindly what you had been, to what you had been told ever since your childhood was right. And you consider it right because it appears to you as your own condition of existence. For all that, the firmness of your moral judgment could be evidence of your personal abjectness, of impersonality. Your moral strength might have its source in your stubbornness or in your inability to envision, to envisage new ideals. And briefly, if you had thought more subtly, observed better, and learned more, you certainly would not go on calling this duty of yours and this conscience of yours duty and conscience. You un your understanding of the manner in which moral judgments have originated would spoil these grand words for you. So we can almost picture the Joker looking at Batman and saying, Why so serious? We can almost hear the Joker mocking Batman, telling him that his sense of duty and of justice and of conscience don't matter. To break his one rule and to embrace the playfulness in life. To allow the reality of the free play of instincts. To acknowledge that the rules don't make sense. This is a picture from The Killing Joke where he's saying, you know, you see how absurd this is. You had one bad day too. Why aren't you laughing? You, it's almost Nietzsche to Kant. You get it, Kant. Like you saw the truth of how reality is. Why can't you see it now? Why are you retreating into a moral code that you know is a lie? So Nietzsche goes on. And now don't cite the categorical imperative, my friend. This term tickles my ears and makes me laugh despite your serious presence. It makes me think of the old Kant who obtained the thing in itself by stealth, another ridiculous thing, and was punished for this when the categorical imperative crept stealthily, stealthily into his ear and led him astray, back to God, the soul, freedom, and immortality, like a fox who loses his way and goes astray back into his cage. Yet it had been his strength and cleverness that had broken open the cage. So like Kant, we can say to Batman, you've seen this, you've had the cage open, you've seen how corrupt society is, you've seen how corrupt the world is, how much the world doesn't make sense, and yet you broke out of the cage, and yet you're returning to it. 
So Nietzsche says, you see the world as it is, Kant. You see the world the way I do, and you've hidden inside your mask and your code and things that help you make sense of the world. So don't we hear the Joker's taunt of Batman and Batman R.I.P.? The real joke is your stubborn, bone-deep conviction that somehow, somewhere, all of this makes sense. So no, the Dark Knight, while impressive, is not the Ubermensch. And Nietzsche might even praise uh, someone like Kant and the morality of the weak and the weak for having invented a certain amount of cleverness. Even the Joker seems to appreciate Batman's cleverness. But ultimately, Batman is a man with a moral code driven by revenge and resentment. And as Nietzsche points out in the genealogy of morals, the strong put codes of law in place to restrain a justice driven by revenge, not to embrace justice based on revenge. So being a man of vengeance, Batman cannot be the Ubermensch, which leads us to the Joker. So putting aside the current Jeff Johns mystery of the three Jokers, I want to take us back to Arkham Asylum, A Serious House on a Serious Earth, where Dr. Ruth Adams describes the Joker's conditions to Batman. She says, the Joker's a special case. Some of us feel he may be beyond treatment. In fact, we're not even sure if he can be properly defined as insane. It's quite possible we may actually be looking at some kind of super sanity here, a brilliant new medication of human perception, more suited to urban life at the end of the 20th century. He can only cope with the chaotic barrage of input by going with the flow. That's why some days he's a mischievous clown and others a psychopathic killer. He has no real personality. He creates himself each day. So this is Morrison's meta way of explaining why we have so many interpretations of the Joker from different writers and artists. But in Ecce Homo, uh, Nietzsche declares that consciousness itself is only a surface or appearance, and that it's freed from any strong metaphysical sense of there being a there, there in ourselves. In fact, Nietzsche holds that one should abandon the idea of a pre-physical soul altogether, and it is the body from which all else follows. Nietzsche provides the metaphor of a wave to describe the life of someone freed from all metaphysical considerations of the world and themselves. He writes, but already another wave is approaching, still more greedily and savage than the first, and its soul too seems to be full of secrets and lust to dig up treasures. Thus live waves, thus live we who will, who will. More I shall not say. Um, as Walter, uh, so I want to point out a few things because I want to make sure uh, I have a lot here from Nietzsche. But one of the things the Ubermensch has is this overflowing vitality like the waves that are constantly, there's a constant play of the waves. Or one, now there's a wave here and then it goes out and another wave comes in. And that's a lot like what our consciousness is, driven by instincts that are coming from we know not where. And that ultimately... Um, Nietzsche says, because of this, the world has become infinite for us all over again, inasmuch as we cannot reject the impossibility that it may include infinite interpretations. And this ability to embrace the infinite interpretations of the world involves the strength to create for ourselves our own new eyes, and ever again new eyes that are even more our own. So where we see... So what we see here is Nietzsche's understanding of the instability of any stable notion of the self. Instead, we, are, uh, we change like the waves crashing on the beach. Um, there's this free play of instincts underneath the surface of which are the flow of instincts, 
but there's constantly a new surface arising. Today, a psychotic clown killer, tomorrow, a harmless prankster. And like the Joker, our own self is being constantly re reinterpreted. And the Ubermensch embraces this. Uh, the Ubermensch is okay with an unstable surface appearance. Um, and it's interesting that Dr. Adams mentions the Joker's condition may be a product of 20th century life. Because for Nietzsche, the Ubermensch, who would embrace his free play of instincts underneath the surface of consciousness, um, emerges from the modern with its Kantian sense of a stable, subjective, apperceptive self. The stable sense of the subject gives way to the play of instincts and the changing of appearances. Now, likewise, uh, I want to talk about a little bit, and I'll try to skip through chunks of this part, but it's important that the Joker himself moves beyond good and evil. Uh, as the trickster once noted, when supervillains want to scare each other, they tell Joker stories. So, so there's a sense in which the Joker doesn't even play nice with the villains. The Joker's a wild card who moves beyond the binary opposition of good and evil. And the Joker, despite his reputation for evil, has been known to turn good. For instance, in Morrison's Batman and Robin, the Joker assists Batman and Robin and allies himself with them against the villain Dr. Hurt, a figure who Morrison represents as the devil himself and as evil incarnate. So Dr. Hurt glorifies in his role as an evil figure. But the Joker is beyond such categories as good and evil. And it is the Joker who ultimately outsmarts evil by tripping it up with a banana peel, the oldest gag, the fall, so to speak, causing Dr. Hurt to fall into an open grave and be buried alive. So in this sense, the Joker is in many ways beyond evil because in a way he buries evil. Uh, actually, earlier in Batman R.I.P., the Joker had again initially allied with Dr. Hurt in the Black Glove, um, but he turns on Hurt, kills one of the members of the Black Glove, and says, I'll place a wager of my own, that Batman will crawl out of the grave with his faculties intact, his soul unruined, and track you down like the dogs you are. So even evil as such is sort of distasteful to the Joker. He's beyond these categories of good and evil, and sees that there are these cemented values that can be called into dispute. And then finally... Uh, as I said, the Ubermensch isn't specifically male. Um, so given the overhuman's embrace of the will to power and the free play of instincts, there are implications for this of gender, for gender identity. And one interesting person to put Nietzsche in dialogue with is Judith Butler, who strikes a very Nietzschean chord, and I'm not going to quote everything I have here, but basically for Butler, the I, the self, is a surface sign for which there is no metaphysical deep down for. Um, so like Nietzsche, she rejects the notion of the stable self. Um, and instead, what she'll talk about uh, in a famous essay of hers is, that, is how the instability of the eye causes one to consider that gender and sexuality themselves are fabrications, and as such, they reveal every claim to the origin, the inner, the true, and the real as nothing other than the effects of drag, whose subversive possibilities ought to be played and replayed to make the sex of gender into a site of political play. So uh, for, for Butler, there's this idea that gender itself is almost uh, a type of drag show where that is inherently unstable. So today you may be playing the gendered role of the male, but gender itself is an inherently unstable thing such that it could switch and become something else tomorrow. And so there's an instability even to our gender categories. 
And this is important, uh, particularly for uh, Morrison again, but even for the Joker in terms of um, how Butler's queer theory uh, brings us back to Morrison's depiction of the Joker in Arkham Asylum, who in his original script, he actually wanted to show the Joker as be wearing a dress and be a sort of dark Madonna figure and playing in the religious roles of, and playing the sort of religious uh, iconography of Arkham Asylum. So the word transvestite is actually used in the original script, and even though this script, this description was censored, the Joker still appears wearing heels, um, which I couldn't find a picture of, but it's later in the book you actually see his feet and you see the heels that he's wearing. So here there's a type of gender play that fits with Butler's views on drag and the Nietzschean idea of the play of appearances. Uh, so Batman, by contrast, is shown here especially as sexually rigid and nervous, afraid of gender instability and not fully embracing it like the Joker does. And he verbally lashes out at the Joker when he grabs Batman by the buttocks and tells him, lighten up, tight ass, right? So Morrison is interested in more than just Batman's reaction to sexual assault here. He's contrasting the Joker's free gender play with Batman's sexual uptightness and the fear of the loss of sexual stability. And for the Ubermensch, that stability should be something they're willing to let go in favor of a new interpretation. So Batman, again, does not behave as the Ubermensch would. Because the Ubermensch understands the instability of all surface appearances, uh, even that of gender, and can embrace the free play of the waves, now one appearing, now a different one, in personality, in gender, in good, and in bad. So... While, again, I have an enormous amount of respect for Chuck's essay, I'm not sure if Batman can be considered the Ubermensch, because the Ubermensch requires a type of free play of appearances and of the self that Batman, for all of his discipline, um, his sexual insecurity, and his vengeance-driven morality lacks. And the Joker, with his free play of identity, relationship to good and evil, and of his gender, seems to fit the bill a little bit more. Now, Appendix 1, uh, and this will end what I what I want to say about this. An argument could be made that the Joker represents not the Ubermensch, but the nihilism at the end of modernity that directly precedes the Ubermensch. And I think this could be true. Um, but what I will say is there's more of the Ubermensch in the Joker than there is in the Kantian figure of Batman. Thank you. Any questions? Yeah. Already your appendix conclusion that's actually I say also yes it's more like a, a free spirit because uh, what I think is that uh, this uh, beyond good and evil is not just like uh, everything is the same but it's more like uh, go beyond the, the amoral that that teaches and then uh, creates a you know, moral so creates uh, its yeah. own good and evil a joker doesn't do, do that so it just right. uh, destroy everything and, I still think that Bat Batman, okay, yesterday I lie a little bit for the sake of my presentation, say Batman is a beyond man. <laughs> I think it's not completely true. There is, of course, some um, um, 
flux and you pointed it way out, so. <laughs> but mm, I don't think that's uh, this, for example, the not killing rule. I do not, I think that uh, is not teacher to Batman. So like the with more, I, I rather think that it's a rule that he creates himself after, something like uh, uh, he creates his own moral that's include a no-killing rule. So that's like a, something that Tanuga Mensch actually can do. So the moral of Batman is the total human. It's not like uh, I, no, I do not kill because uh, there is some kind of uh, good or God or divinity or uh, good in, in itself uh, that say not kill. I do not kill because I choose not to kill. Something like that. And what's that? Uh, yeah, of course, there is uh, some other aspect that's uh, the connection with humanity. So, in my research, it, and a lot of villain characters, uh, the Joker, for example, are really similar to the Uberman. I think I get the most anti heroic character, like uh, before Vendetta, are what represent the best the Nietzsche Uberman. And Batman, uh, I think, somewhere in between, between the super-heroic and the anti-heroic, so something really near to the woman. Um, I'm just saying, what else? Things? Uh, yeah, but, but, um, this about this uh, self-creating moral in the, the Dark Knight Returns. You can see there, really, Batman becoming uh, an anti-hero at the end of the first Frank Miller and uh, separate itself from the society, from the values of this society, of the, this dystopic Ronald Reagan's uh, America, fighting God, so Superman, so that's also real symbolic, so. And this stay with this moral. You do not uh, go on with the society, you do not go on with the society, say it's, it's good, so it go in uh, this, this story. It goes beyond good and evil, they say, society say that's good, that's evil, but I have my own moral and I make my own rule. And, but when I, when I read the, when I read the version of the Joker from Gary Morrison, what you quote, that's also one of my favorites for the Joker in that itself. That's actually a version of the Joker, really, really ubermenschlich. <laughs> but it's uh, one, Maybe not the, I would say the only one. We're so near to the Ubermensch. But in general, I still see Batman, not the Beyond Man, but really near to it. Yeah. And I sorry, it's so. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's, that's fine. I, I think the tough thing there is that, uh, so you were there when, uh, I forget, uh, Brandon did his thing on Plato's Cave. Like, he, he asserted Batman's, it all depends on how you interpret Batman's one rule, right? Is he creating it himself? Or is there some sense of like justice and truth that he's fighting for, right? Mm -hmm. That either make him a Plato, Kant, Christianity, Judaism yeah. figure, yeah. or it'll make him the Ubermensch, right? Um, I, I do wonder with Batman the issue of vengefulness and the the like the the stewing on it for so long, like that that it's hard for me not to see that as like tying it into. I guess that's that's true. So that's maybe what's uh, the most strong argument against uh, Batman or Superman. The disparaging full uh, resentment. Yeah. That's, uh, that's true. 
Yeah, but no, I, I think those are, I, I hear you, on, like, and that's why I said with the Joker, even I was putting this together, I was like, is he the nihilist? <laughs> <laughs> um, so I had that, yeah, I had that same thought. Um, so I, under, I understand the Batman argument, but I just wonder if there's too much conventional morality, and if there's too much, because um, it also depends on how you relate. It's connected with the humanity. Yeah, so yeah. that's what maybe my superior not an ideal. But I, I think we can all agree that Superman has not to do with the Superman. That's uh, I think we can agree on. Oh that. yeah, totally. No, no, yeah, that's definitely. Uh, if you read Nietzsche and uh, you know Superman a little bit now, you know that's totally different. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Any other questions? I think we might be. Thank you guys. Yeah. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed listening to today's episode of the Religion Prof Podcast, having the chance to uh, attend after the fact and from a distance the session that uh, I and Matt Brake participated in at the conference about Batman at Bowling Green State University. Thanks for listening, and bye for now.